few years ago when David Glover and I made our uh, trek to India, we were in the far northwestern state of Gujarat, and that evening they were having a festival uh, called Diwali, Celebration of Light. And I was invited there to speak on the true light of the world, Jesus Christ. And there was a large gathering of people there. And David can tell you about this. When, when we got there, we were treated like, like dignitaries. Uh, we were treated like, you know, like foreign ambassadors. Uh, it, it was a bit unsettling. You know, we got these huge garlands of flowers uh, put around our necks. David can tell you we got these very uh, glittery vests with all sorts of designs on them. And we got these little crowns. Now, I would have shown you a picture of us wearing the crowns, but um, I didn't want that to be the only image that stuck with you today because it was like a, like a size six and a half crown on my size three and seven and three quarters head. And so it looked a little bit ridiculous, but I had to wear it anyway. But we were treated this way with just such royalty, it, you know, it was a little unsettling. And I thought of that when I read this section of a book on missions, uh, God's Global Work in Missions, called Missions Christ Way uh, by Leslie Newbigin. And Leslie writes this about one of his experiences in India, and I could so picture it, it just resonated. Here's what he said. He said, I remember once visiting a village in the Madras region. There was no road into the village, and you reached it by crossing a river. You could do this either on the south side of the village or on the north. The congregation there had decided that I would come by the southern route, and they prepared a welcome such as only an Indian village can prepare. There was music and fireworks and garlands and fruit, everything you could imagine. Unfortunately, I entered the village at the north end, and I found only a few goats and chickens. Crisis he writes. I had to disappear while word was sent to the assembled congregation and the entire village did a sort of U-turn so as to face the other way. Then I duly reappeared. This is what repentance means. The Greek word metanoia, to turn. The point is this, the reign of God has drawn near, but you can't see it because you're looking the wrong way. You're expecting the wrong thing. What you think is God isn't God at all. You have to be, as Paul said, transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to go through a mental revolution. Otherwise, the reign of God will be totally hidden from you. And what Leslie Newbigin wrote is so appropriate to the text we're going to look at today. And God's call for repentance. For without repentance, you will not see God. You will not recognize Him. You will not recognize Jesus in His coming. You will not see the goodness and the gift that is Christ. You will not have the joy and pleasure of knowing Him and following Him and resting in Him and trusting in Him. You will not have the peace that is His without repentance. So much hangs on repentance, more than we can measure. Maybe more than I can express and more than I can explain. Probably more than we can even understand. Hinges on this critical factor. Without repentance, you won't know God. I want you to pray with me this morning as we prepare to look at this text together today. Father, if you do not move in our hearts, our hearts will remain unmoved. Father, if you don't break our hearts regarding sin, we will remain stubborn and hard-hearted. Father, if you do not show us ourselves as you see us, Father, we will continue to live in self-delusion. Father, if you do not humble us, we will remain proud. 
Father, if you do not confront us and convict us, we will remain unmoved and unchanged. But Father, if we will hear your word today, if we will respond to your spirit today, if we will allow you and your love for us, your gentleness towards us, that through your good fathering hand to humble us, then we could be lifted up. We could be set free. We, we could be forgiven. We could leave here totally transformed by your power. We'll but repent. So, Father, I ask by your Holy Spirit you'd bring to bear every truth to every person here that's specific to them. And I pray that you would peel back the layers, cause us to see what we choose not to see, what we're often unwilling to see, cause us to feel what we don't want to feel. If by doing those things, Father, we might turn to you with humble repentance and find that you're ready to forgive. So, Father, speak, and may we do, may we respond, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our text is Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We've moved past the birth accounts of Jesus. We fast forwarded now into his adulthood and the inauguration of his ministry and the introduction of a unique character in, in the New Testament. And how significant is this character? Well, it's not by a number of words written about him and certainly none recorded by us of him. But yet Jesus says about this man that there is none greater born of woman than the person I'm about to introduce to you. That's how significant the character of John the baptizer was to Jesus. And we see him first in chapter 3 of Matthew's gospel. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Who is this interesting character, the one in a camel skin coat, living off the land, locusts and wild honey? Who is this John the Baptist, this fearless confronter of the religious leaders, this, this man who in all of his rawness and his bluntness is drawing the crowds, drawing the masses out to the Jordan River to be baptized? Well, keep in mind that John is a sort of, sort of Old Testament prophet. And obviously he, picked, he appears in the New Testament. But he's the last of the prophets before the Messiah. And in that sense, there's a continuity between those prophets of old Men like Ezekiel and Daniel. And the one that he most reminds us of, Elijah. 
And here he is in all of his boldness and his fieriness, his fearlessness, in the wilderness, not in the temple, not in the city. This is a wild man in the best sort of way, unfiltered, living only for the honor of God, saying only what God wants him to say, like, like Elijah, calling people back to God. For 400 years, there had been no prophet like him in Israel. 400 years and maybe they wondered if there would ever be another Elijah-type prophet again. Another fearless proclaimer of truth. Another one standing there saying, thus says the Lord, regardless of the cause. But that, that's John. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 through 6, tells us a little bit of this prophesied Elijah figure. Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. It was prophesied by Isaiah that God would send a forerunner. He would send someone to prepare the way to hear Jesus. Someone to prepare the soil, as it were, the soil of men's hearts, that they might respond to the message of Christ and the message of the coming kingdom. He's heralding this kingdom of God. And not just the coming kingdom, but most specifically, the coming king. How will anyone ever enter into this kingdom? It is through this conquering king, Messiah, Jesus, who's come. And that's the message of John. And since that kingdom is coming, since this world is changing, since the enemy is about to be defeated, and the rule and reign of God is being established in this world again, what is the only right response? Repent. Repent. Turn and be prepared to face and surrender to the King of kings and Lord of lords. The message of repentance. As part of that message, John was baptizing people. I'll talk a little bit more about this next week in the baptism of Christ. What does the Bible teach us about baptism? And how does John's connect from themes in the Old Testament all the way to the baptism of Christ and the baptisms we do today? We'll explore that a little bit more in depth. But John's baptism was centered scripturally in repentance. In repentance. And keep in mind what's happening conceptually here. You've got these Jewish people coming out. Now John was, uh, he was a missionary, an evangelist of sorts, mostly a prophet to the Jewish people. And as they're coming out, he's calling them to personal faith. He's calling them to a personal response. And that's what I want you to see in this text. This baptism is not a collective act. It's not just uh, religious going through the motions. He's saying to them and challenging their notion of our rightness. You think you're okay because you're Jewish. You think you're safe because you're sons of Abraham. You think because of your lineage, you've got nothing to fear that you're just fine. You have deluded yourself. You've deluded yourself. And your sinfulness, your hardness of heart, is going to cause you to miss the greatest gift in the world and subject you to the greatest judgment in the world when the Messiah comes. And so you yourself have to turn. It's a challenge to personal faith. You have to step out of that crowd and step into these waters as a demonstration of your repentance. Yes, I turn from my sin. I turn from my self-reliance. I, I turn even from those things I've counted on and trusted in in my culture and religion and heritage. And I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be ready for this coming king, this personal response of faith, this personal response of confession. John tells them, in essence, confess your sins now. Be prepared now because God's wrath is hovering over you. 
The analogy he uses is this. He says the axe is already at the root of the tree. This isn't future tense. It's already been swung. The connection is about to happen. You're about to be judged. You're so close to the fire of judgment, you don't even realize it. So repent now. Mark chapter 1, verse 4, called his baptism, as we see in Matthew's gospel, a baptism for repentance, for the forgiveness, for the forgiveness of sins. Being Jewish is no guarantee of being safe. Growing up in a religious household is no guarantee of being safe. Practicing all those rituals and laws is no guarantee of being safe. You must throw yourself on the mercy of God in repentance because the wrath of God is real and the wrath of God is imminent. And so he preaches repentance to them. What's the theme of this passage for us? More than just a history lesson, more than just this odd anomaly in the life story of Jesus and this appearance of an Old Testament-like prophet. It's a reminder to us that the one thing in the broadest of sense and in the most specific of sense that separates us from God is our own sin. Is our own sin. In a very real way, each of us controls how close we will be, how much knowledge we will have, and how much enjoyment we will have of God. It's our own sin. If God is distant to you today, if God doesn't seem real to you today, or if you claim to be a Christian and you just don't, I don't know how to explain this, you just don't feel it. You don't feel this sort of closeness or intimacy, this relationship with. You don't have this sense of I'm walking with and I'm hearing from and being guided by and I'm trusting and I'm comforted by and I have peace in God then I can almost with certainty say, I can tell you the cause. I can diagnose it quickly. Biblically, it's sin. Sin is always the great separator between man and God. Now, we know this theologically. It's the ultimate separator. Why do we need the good news of the gospel? Because of the bad news of sin. When sin entered into the world, death came with it. And death passed upon all of us because of it. Because we all have sinned. But I'm not talking just to a group of unbelievers. I'm talking about a group that's vast majority believers. Why are you struggling in your spiritual life? Why is your quiet time kind of empty and dull? Why is your prayer life scant, brief, lacks power, lacks results? Is it because of unconfessed sin? Now, what I can't do today and I'm not sure it would be terribly effective anyway, is just to run down a litany of sins. Just hoping sort of like a spiritual um, crossword puzzle or a spiritual bingo card, I might hit yours. But I'm praying that God will show you yours. And I'm praying that what I say to you very simply is only a confirmation, an affirmation of what God's Spirit has been saying to you. The issue is this sin. The issue is this practice the issue is this belief the issue is this attitude the issue is this behavior the issue is this addiction this is why you're struggling spiritually it's because of sin and the only remedy to sin is to repent is to repent when john came preparing the way for jesus the first preparation for seeing and understanding receiving and trusting following and living for the new messiah the coming Messiah, the promised one of God, was not theological. That doesn't mean that's not important. John didn't come first spewing facts. He came first speaking to the heart of repentance. Because all the facts in the world don't penetrate a sinned, sickened, sin-hardened heart. 
It's our sins that cause us to disbelieve. It's our sins that cause us to be disconnected. It's our sins that cause us to be disenfranchised from God's people. Almost invariably, when people stop attending church faithfully, they drop out of their small group or their D group, or their relationships with Christian friends change. Almost invariably, there's a sin root problem somewhere that's showing its sick fruit in every other Christian relationship. We become uncomfortable in those places, disconnected from those people, unsatisfied with those sort of things like worship services and church. And at the root of that is sin. And sin is driving all those things. What must we do? Repent. I want to read to you a rather technical theological definition of repentance because it's meaningful to me and I hope it'll be meaningful to you. A.W. Pink said this is repentance. Hear this. He said repentance is a supernatural and inward revelation from God. Let me stop there. A supernatural and inward revelation from God. That's why I'm saying I pray that God's Spirit does this for you because I don't want to make you feel bad today. My aim, contrary to what you may be thinking already, is great. This is going to be one of those sermons where he steps all over our toes. He's trying to make us feel guilty. That's not my aim. My aim is just simply to be a vessel through which the Holy Spirit can speak to your heart, through which the Holy Spirit will give you revelation from God. Doing so, he said, gives a deep consciousness of what I am in his sight. How we see ourselves is not always accurate. And often when we don't like what we see about ourselves or how we see ourselves, then we base our self-image on how other people see us. And that causes us to want to only gather people who see in us what we want them to see or want to think of ourselves anyway. So we don't have critical people. We don't have people that will hold us accountable. We don't have people that will speak truth because we don't want to deal with those things. Who sees us most rightly? Who sees us most clearly? Who sees us truthfully and totally? God, His Spirit. So let me read. Giving a deep consciousness of what I am in His sight, which causes me to loathe and condemn myself, resulting in a bitter sorrow for sin, a holy horror and hatred for sin, and turning away from or forsaking sin. It's the discovery of God's high and righteous claims upon me and of my lifelong failure to meet those claims. It's the recognition of the holiness and goodness of His law and my defiant insubordination to it. It's the perception that God has the right to rule and govern me and my refusal to submit to that governance. It's the apprehension that he's dealt in goodness and kindness with me and that I have repaid him with evil by having no concern for his honor and for his glory. It's the realization of his patient grace towards me and how instead of that melting my heart and causing me to yield in loving obedience to him, I abuse his forbearance by continuing in a course of sinful self-will. That's repentance. But here's the good news. What does God do with and for those who are honest and willing to repent and turn to him? What does he promise? Grace upon grace upon grace. More than we could imagine. Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Now I can't explain to you every nuance of that statement. But I know that I'm always, I'm not always seeking. I'm not always drawing near. If God is drawing your heart, if he's speaking to your heart, if he's pulling you, if he's hitting you, if the heart is being affected by what you hear, now's that moment. Seek him while he may be found. Because he may seem far from you. You may not be thinking about this again. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. 
and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Do you see the promise of God for the humbly repentant person? Compassion and pardon. Compassion and pardon. This is what God longs to do. This is the message of the cross. This is the purpose of our redemption, that we might be pardoned as we receive the compassion of God. But it's only for the humble, the humble repentant. On repentance, as if you needed this sort of lesson uh, in short order on repentance, let me just remind you of the significance of repentance in Scripture. The very first doctrine that Jesus preached was repentance. Jesus came in Mark's gospel, as many of you know, because we studied it quite well, I think. The time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The first sermon of Jesus, Mark 1.15. The apostles, the first opportunity they were given to preach as Jesus sent them out in pairs. What did they preach when he sent them out? Mark 6.12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. When Peter finished his two great sermons in the book of Acts, chapter 2 and chapter 3, what is the response he's calling for? Not simply that you know things, not making sure that you understand things and agree with them, but he called people to repent. Now when they'd heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter, to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What did Peter say? What should you do? If the message of the good news of Christ collides with your spiritual condition, knowing that you're lost in your sins, knowing that you have no hope to stand before God in judgment and be justified as if you never sinned, knowing that you bear the full weight of that and deserve the wrath of God, it hit their hearts, what should we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. Repent, and as a demonstration of that repentance, be baptized. He said in Acts 3, 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent, your sins are taken away, blotted out, and the presence of God is given instead. When sin is most prevalent, God's presence seems most absent. He says, here's your response, repent. When the Jerusalem church, which had a hard time accepting pagan or Gentile converts, but when God stirred their hearts and helped them see he's building a church of all tribes and all people and all nations, when the Gentiles heard that the, I mean, when the Jews heard that the pagan, formerly pagan Gentiles had converted, they celebrated that they had repented. Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, To the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They celebrate the work of God that brought about repentance there. When Paul summarized his own ministry, standing on trial in Acts chapter 26, he gave this summary of everything that he preached. You want to take it all, all the sermons, all the messages, all the encounters, in every temple and in every house and in every city, he summarized it like this. King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also the, to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. This is the theme of the New Testament. This is the necessary requisite of the gospel for us. Our response, without repentance, there is no reconciliation to God. If you're an unbeliever today, if you walked into this room 
not a follower of Christ, not a Christian yet. Just understand, without repentance, there is nothing that you can do that will ever reconcile you to God. You cannot make peace with God apart from repentance. It cannot happen. You cannot leave here saying, man, that was kind of a scary message, this whole wrath of God stuff. Axe laid to the root of the tree, chaff being burned up in fire and all that. Man, I got to get out of here and do better. By now, most people, I won't say most of us, I'll assume we're a better class of people. Most people statistically have forsaken their new year's resolutions by now congratulations you did good for a few weeks welcome back to normal no i'm not saying leave here and do better if you could do better you would have done it if doing better could have fixed you you'd be different and if it could save us we wouldn't need jesus we sure wouldn't need the message of the gospel without jesus and repentance towards him there's no reconciliation but if you're a believer, you need to hear this part too. Without repentance, there is no fellowship with God. I think about David. When David committed his most well-known, most egregious sin, part of his confession was a request. After confessing, restore to me the joy of my salvation. You know what I think David was alluding to? The reality that a lot of Christians live in today you are saved. That's in the hands of God. That's a promise of God made to those who believe the gospel and put their faith and trust in it. But you don't live like you are, and you certainly don't feel like you are, and you're not enjoying the benefits in this life as if you were. You don't have fellowship with Him, and that fellowship has been interrupted because of repentance. So what does repentance look like according to this text? What was the repentance that Jesus preached and the apostles preached, that Paul preached? What's the theme of John the Baptist's ministry of repentance? What did he say? What's consistent in all their teaching? I'm going to give you three simple points today. I want you to think deeply about each of these and how they apply to you and if they show up in your life. First one is this. Genuine repentance, genuine repentance has its fruits. It has its fruits. You can't feign genuine repentance. You can't hide genuine repentance. Genuine repentance shows up. That's what he was challenging the Pharisees and Sadducees with. Now, I don't suppose he was really at odds with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They may have loved John the Baptist. I mean, he was zealous like they were. And he certainly pressed the point of law-keeping like many of them did. But when he spoke to the internal, not just the external, he really challenged them. He challenged them not just with doing things that people expect you to do or doing things publicly so people think you're something you're not. He got right down to their hearts and said, where's the fruit of this? This will show up. There's fruit. Sometimes I think we misunderstand repentance. We get caught doing something and we're embarrassed or shamed. Or maybe just through the sovereign work of God and His grace, Without being caught, we begin to realize in ourselves how wrong we've done, what we've done, and we begin to feel guilty about it. And, and, and by the way, the Christian response is to confess that sin, to get on our knees before God. The worldly response is to find something that'll take those feelings away. I, I gotta preoccupy myself or occupy myself with something else. I, I gotta I gotta get some counseling here to deal with my feelings or find something to do that makes me feel more positive or surround myself with different people and we try to therapy away sin we even 
defines sin as a condition that requires therapy rather than repentance. We feel guilty. Some of you in this room go through daily life, maybe not with a constant feeling, but at least a periodic, episodic experiences of regret. I wish I hadn't done that. I still feel terrible about that. I hate to get a reminder of that. And we're just struggling with these painful regrets. Some of you in this room have even gone farther than that. Some of you have even made sincere confession, and you're making it over and over and over again. You're telling God how sorry you are over and over and over and over. Repentance is more than that, more than your guilty feelings, more than your painful regrets, more even than sincere confession. Now, all of those things may lead you to real repentance. They may be part of the process that leads you to repentance. But true repentance is far more than that. God didn't desire you nor design you to live in a state of constant emotional pain and regret and remorse and bad feelings. That is utterly self-destructive. God designed you to be free of sin. See, all these things can lead you to repentance, but there are far more. there's far more to repentance. Let me give you a quick case study. So for those of you who are really perceptive, you know this is one of those times where like, I give you a bonus sermon in a sermon. Okay, so yes, you get two. This is a twofer today. I want you to think of 2 Corinthians and Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he describes it. Now what's happening in 2 Corinthians is the, there are some people there guilty of some serious sin. Some messy, messed up sin. Paul confronts it. He challenges that sin. And not only those who committed the sin, but he challenges the church. Why are you putting up with this stuff? Why are you letting this just happen among you like it's okay? Like we're not different from those who don't know Christ. Why are you living this way? And why are you allowing other people to live this way? You're guilty too for not helping them, rescuing them, challenging them, correcting them. And if they don't respond and repent, put them out. And so in this letter, challenge them and just really, I mean, he's putting the... He's doing more than putting a cloud over them. He's putting the boot to them. And listen to what he says when he writes, starting in chapter 7, verse 5. He said, Even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. He says, where did I get my comfort from? Not just that I got to see Titus, but Titus told me something. Something about you, something that's happening in your life. Listen to what he said. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. You catch what Paul is saying? This is real. This is human stuff. Paul's not a robot here. He's not an uncaring, cold theologian. Paul loves these people. He cares about them. He cares about their lives and their family lives. He cares about their, their relationships with each other. He cares about the sin that they do because it destroys them. And he cares about the glory of God because their sins diminish the glory of God. And he cares about the witness and the work of the church because a sinful church is a powerless church. 
And so Paul says to them in very personal terms, I know, and let me summarize. I, I, I hope if Paul were here, he'd say, okay, that's pretty close to what I meant. Here's what I feel is that he's saying in this text, listen, I get that that hurt. My intent was not to hurt. Maybe humanly I felt bad that it hurt you for a little bit, but I don't feel bad for it because in that hurt that it caused, you repented. You repented. You did something with that. This was not your loss. It may have felt like a loss to be corrected like this, to be publicly shamed like this, to be called out like this. That may have felt like a loss. What a, what a cataclysmic emotional event that was. My sin became public. I'm being called out on a public stage. What do I do with this? It may have felt like loss, but you realize now in your repentance, it's not loss, it's gain. And listen to why that is. Verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Or eagerness to clear yourself. What indignation, fear, longing, zeal, punishment. It motivated you to do the right things. You took care of the sin. You repented. You recognized sin rightly. You lived differently. Look what it produced in you. Godly grief produces fruitful, beneficial results. Worldly grief produces death. See, that's why I said there in your notes, repentance is not self-loathing and self-condemnation. It, not only is it not, it's more than guilty feelings, painful regret, even sincere confession, and it's not self-loathing and self-condemnation either. Paul wasn't telling the Corinthians, you dirty dogs, you stinking pigs, you, you slimy snakes, you're terrible, worthless people, and never tell me otherwise. This is what you are, this is what you ought to feel like, and you should never claim to be any different. That was not the aim. That is worldly grief. And Paul was saying, that produces death. That kills you. Listen to what I'm saying. And I'm not a psychologist here. I'm not taking even a psychological view. But if you feel guilty because you're guilty, and all you do is suppress those feelings, the regret, the remorse, the painful feelings, the sense of guilt, and you just hang on to those things, or, if worse yet, as a religious person, you think that's the right thing, like you're, you're doing some act of self-flagellation. You know, I think of Martin Luther thinking that he could save himself by confessing his sins and crawling up the steps of that abbey where he lived as a monk on his knees till they were bloody, thinking that that would give him absolution for his sins. You may not be crawling around on your knees, but you're beating yourself to death with it. You are the definition of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and verse 10. Worldly grief produces death. And there is not a pill you can take or a liquid you can consume or a group you can be in that's going to fix that. That takes confession. And in confession, you deal rightly with your sin and you confront it directly and honestly and truly. And the grace of God, which is greater than your sin, through His compassion, removes it from you he takes it off of you and he changes you this is repentance genuine repentance always contains at least these three indispensable elements i realized as i was changing things up in your notes and switching words around that i forgot it's it's like i translated this from you know from another language indispensable three elements sure the indispensable three i like it we'll go with it 
Three indispensable elements. Number one, there's a cognitive element. In other words, you've got to get this. You've got to look at what God's Word says. You've got you to understand this. You've got to understand the reality here. You have to understand some things about sin. God defines what sin is. You have to understand some things about God. I see the time, and I'm, I'm, I'm wary of, of, a, of a little detour. But something's just in my mind this morning that I thought, I, let me share it with you a little bit half-baked, not in my notes, but something I think we need to be aware of as Christians. A, a very careful uh, warning here for a moment. I think we're so used to hearing about the effect and weight of sin in only human terms that it's actually caused us to be less repentant, less sensitive to the Holy Spirit, less holy. Let me, let me say what I mean. We make these appeals, and I've been guilty of doing the same thing. Here's why you should repent of sin. You're going to feel better. Your blood pressure might go down. You might find yourself a little bit healthier. Your relationships will be better. You'll be happier in your marriage. You'll be more satisfied at work. You can feel better about yourself. You'll be able to look yourself in the mirror and like what you see. And I'm not saying that none of those things are true, and maybe all of those things are true. But we've so presented the case for confession on a me basis. How will this benefit me, and how will this bless me? And quite un unintentionally, what we've done in saying that is, it's implicit, it's not explicit. We're saying God doesn't matter in this equation. Sin is really just an issue of you. How to live a better life for you. How to feel better about you. How to get along with people better and have better success at work. It's really a you issue. God's not in the equation. And nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, I would posit something really is almost the opposite of that. What if your relationships don't get better? And what if your desire for holiness only makes you more of a weirdo at work? And what if you're what if your awareness of your own sinfulness makes it harder for you to look yourself in the mirror? Because now you're starting to see yourself through a biblical lens, through a Holy Spirit lens. What if none of those self-actualizations and realizations improve? Is it still right to confess sin? You see, sin is ultimately not about me and my benefit. It's about the glory of God. It's about who God is. See, when John the Baptist comes, he's telling them, make way for the Lord. He's not saying, listen, guys, I can help you work out your conflict. You Sadducees and Pharisees, you know, the way you guys fight with each other. Listen, confess that you're not as nice as you should be. And you, know, you Sadducees, you guys are a little bit arrogant. You know, if you confess that, look how much happier you'll be. Your wives will like going to the marketplace better together. All this stuff about you, they didn't do that. It's God. It's a high view of God. That as a Christian, I owe him my absolute allegiance. As a Christian, I'm being remade into the image of his son. As a Christian, I'm being prepared for eternity with him. It's about God in my confession. It's cognitive. I understand some things about God and sin. Number two, it's emotional. I think true repentance involves the hating of sin. And let me say this. I'm not talking about just hating the consequence of that sin. Hating that you got caught. Hating that it cost you something. Hating the embarrassment. Hating that you got found out. All those things are real. I'm talking about hating the sin. 
and hating what that sin does to you. And we know the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But an unspoken truth about sin is that the wages of sin is more sin. And the wages of sin is the growing lack of concern about sin. And the wages of sin is a hardening towards the things that are opposite sin, the goodness of God and the things of God. Hate what sin is and hate what sin has done. There's got to be something emotional there. And then number three, there's got to be something volitional, something that relates to the will. As I said, repentance is more than the feelings of guilt. That's a precursor to repentance. And it's even more than taking the step of confession, which is the right step, the necessary step. In confession, I agree with God about my sin. I agree with God what is sin. And I confess that as sin to him. But repentance is the act of the will. I'm determined to forsake this. Repentance is a turning. It's a turning back to God, volitional. So repentance has fruits. Number two, only the humble repent. It's true. Only the humble repent. Here's a verse many of you will be familiar with. We bring this one up a lot at holidays, American holidays, particularly July 4th, particularly. If my people who are called by my name, you can almost picture this on your social media with eagles and flags. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin. I'll heal their land. You hear the precursors of forgiveness and healing? Humility. Humility is what enables real repentance. Only the humble will repent. To face the reality of your own failure is a very humbling thing. To not live in this constant cycle of it's all good. I'm fine. Nothing really wrong. Nothing I can't fix. Nothing I can't handle. I'm not different than anybody else. To face the reality of your own failures is humbling. To feel the weight of your wrongs is humbling. And no, this is serious. This is real. This has had an effect. There are results to this. To honestly acknowledge that you're not good. That you can't make a pretense of your own goodness. You can't stand before God and objectively say, God, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm a good person. I mean, we can do that as long as we're unaware of what God says in His Word about us, of what the truth tells us, of what sin really is. To, to accept at whatever age you are or whatever stage in life you are that you must change, that's humbling. To recognize that you, you, you're not there yet, you're not all that you could be, you haven't reached that place you don't get to rest. That's humbling. To submit yourself to God's authority. To say, I don't get to do whatever I want to do. I don't get to follow my heart. I don't get to go after everything I desire. That's humbling. To surrender to God's will for my life. To say, God, I will put this down. I will walk away from this or this person or this Whatever it may be, all those are humbling things. 
You've got to humble yourself to repent. You've got to see yourself as you are. See your need as it is. Surrender to the only one who can change you and forgive you. That's humbling. And finally, in the message that he gave to those standing there that day, repentance can't wait. I mean, it can't wait. If there was anything that John the Baptist was saying out there, it was this. You better do this now. You better do this now. This can't wait. The stakes are too high for that. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. What's implicit in that? The tree's going to be cut down. It's going to the fire. Or when he says about Jesus coming, the Messiah, he says he's coming with his winnowing fork in his hand. John may have been saying something like this. I'm standing here speaking to all of you, and I don't know who's true and who's false. I don't know who's repentant and who's unrepentant. I don't know who's safe and who's in danger. Because we've all learned to play the game. And we've all learned to, to talk the talk. We've learned how this thing goes. We've learned how to fit in. But I'm telling you, the one is coming who knows. And he's coming with like a winnowing fork. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. One gets burned up. And one gets used for his purposes. For good and glory. He knows. And his judgment is more than mine. And in that sense, I think there's a direct parallel from John the Baptist to anybody who preaches repentance today. I don't know. I don't know what your sins are. And I don't know the condition of your heart. There's coming a day of judgment from the one, by the one who does. And his separation is sure and certain. What sort of repentance do you need to do today? In the interest of trying to be thorough, I thought there's different sorts of repentance. The Bible speaks of repentance in different applications. The most critical of those applications, I think, is repentance unto saving faith. Maybe there's someone in this room, maybe one of you listening this morning, the repentance you need is repentance to be saved. Recognizing that your sins are what separate you from God. And I don't just mean in some sort of emotional, ethereal sense. Life isn't what you want it to be. You're not as happy as you could be. Not as satisfied with things as you'd like. I'm talking about in the very real sense and in the eternal sense. You stand before God one day and He says, Depart from me, I never knew you. And it's because of that sin. Repentance and faith are your response to the gospel. You've heard of who Jesus is. You've heard of His perfect life and his sinless death you've heard of his bodily resurrection you've heard of his imminent return what's your response to these truths these facts not simply to nod your head and say yeah i think those things are true is to turn from your sins and submit to him trust him and put all your confidence and hope and faith in him luke chapter 13 verse 1 and following speaks of this sort of repentance there was some president at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, this is a historical setting. Pilate had judged some rebellious Galileans and done some unspeakable things with their remains. That's what he's talking about here. They, they face a terrible fate. That's what verse 1 is talking about. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because he suffered this way? Again, this is just common sense sort of stuff, the way people think 
thought then the way people think now. You think because he endured such terrible things in his life or had such terrible end, that must have been a terrible person, right? Because only the really evil people die like that or go through that. Do you think they were worse sinners, he said? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You think the most evil people that you see in the world were somehow better than they are? That our sins won't deserve the same sort of punishment theirs does or death? No. Without repentance, we all will likewise perish. Your response today is to repent so that you can be saved, forgiven of your sins. Far more of you in this room may fall into the second category. It's the repentance for believers who are far from God, who have allowed that relationship to grow stale or cold, who become indifferent to the things of God, whose life doesn't show any experience with God, no evidence of a relationship with God. You know if that's you. It shows up in your prayer life, in your spiritual life as a whole, your relationships with others, your desire for spiritual things, your time in the Word, all those things. This is repentance unto return and restoration to God. The person who says, man, how did I get here? How did I allow my life to get in this stead? What do I do now? Psalm 51 is a repentant prayer of David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. You can repent differently because you know God's love is steadfast and unchanging. You repent according to that love, knowing he'll receive it. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You know God is loving and merciful. Why do you treat him as if he's not? Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, David prayed. By the time we get to verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. Because you know who God is, you're without excuse in repenting. You know he's full of unfailing love and conquering mercy. This is God. Or Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. With fasting, with weeping, with mourning. That's humbling, right? Rend your hearts, not your garments. Don't just do these external things. Don't put on a show. I'm not interested in your Ash Wednesday. I'm interested in your broken heart. Repentant over sin. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's the repentant Christian who turns themselves back into the good hands of their merciful and loving God and forsakes sin. And then there's this. Maybe for many of us in this room, it's a realization that a Christian doesn't just repent once. It's a reminder that being repentant is just part of our healthy spiritual life. That repentance means I'm always returning. I'm always conforming. I'm always being sensitive to where I misstep or misspeak, where I sin, where I wrong. This is repentance unto just faithful holiness. It's the daily repentance of a healthy Christian. Psalm 32, listen to these words. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is that person. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there's no deceit. But blessed is the one who keeps short accounts with the Lord, who doesn't wait till he's confronted or embarrassed or called out to confess, but does this as a part of his daily life. 
When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Why? Because he's a good father, and he disciplines those he loves for holiness. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity, I said. I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And in case you're thinking that Psalm 32 sounds like the worst of the worst sort of person who really needed to confess, category 2, not category 3, listen to verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. That's the faithful follower who knows the confession is just part of being holy, walking in holiness. Or as Paul wrote in Romans, brothers, we're not... We're debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. That's the work of repentance, putting to death the deeds of the body. So I live faithfully following Him. What sort of repentance do you need to do today? Let's pray. Father, grant us repentance. Father, grant us the painful gift of conviction over sins. Grant us the courage to honestly face what we see that you've shown us. Grant us the wisdom and the faith to respond biblically. Father, may we move today beyond mere confession or sometimes in our parlance just saying we're sorry again and again. Father, move us to genuine repentance with the power to genuinely repent. Father, you are more gracious than we are sinful. Your Holy Spirit's power in us is greater than our own. In our weakness, your strength is made perfect. Father, I pray that would play out even now as we turn from sin, that, Father, we would genuinely repent, leave sin behind. And find renewal with you find a season of refreshing from you find the burden of sin lifted find ourselves restored back to you in fellowship father i pray there'd be someone in this room who's not a believer yet who would become one even now father i believe what you've done for me in jesus christ and i know i'm a sinner take away my sin forgive me of my sin give me new life put your spirit in me make me new change me Save me. Save me, Father. I pray they call to you today in humble repentance and faith and you would save them. And Father, I pray for the godly in this room who desire personal holiness to walk with you, though we all do it imperfectly and inconsistently. We all need your grace. And we're not held or kept by our goodness such as it is, but by your grace. Father, may we be always repenting, always sensitive to the leadership of your spirit, always ready to conform to your word always ready to put to death sin in us so that we may walk by the Spirit. Father, may that be the case for all of us. So now, Father, I put this in your hands and in the response of your people. Lead us to repentance. Lead us to grace. Lead us to freedom from those sins today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.